Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. For all of the talk of it being a peaceful country with no aggressive intentions, China has behaved like most other rising imperial powers, spending lots of money on its military. Uh, But what do we know of that military, how it's used and what it might be asked to do? James A. Siebens is the editor of China's Use of Armed Coercion, to win without fighting, and I guess the uh, the clues in the title uh, published last year. Welcome to you. Thanks very much, Owen. Thanks for having me. And you're you're talking about the use of armed forces to achieve policy aims, but short of uh, actually going going to war, or, uh, short of armed conflict. Th- that's exactly right, and uh, I think it's important to know going into this conversation that this book is actually part of a larger body of research. Uh, in in 2020, I published a book with Dr. Barry Blackman and Dr. Melanie Sisson uh, entitled Military Coercion and U.S. Foreign Policy, The Use of Force Short of War, which looked at U.S. military operations since the end of the Cold War that had a clear, defined political objective vis-a-vis another government and which attempted to use the armed forces as kind of a uh, an auxiliary to diplomatic efforts to bring about that policy change uh, or to deter some kind of specific unwanted action. And so after completing that study, uh, I wanted to carry on that kind of line of inquiry and look at China this time to better understand, you know, what the quote unquote China threat really constituted in terms of China's concrete actions using military and paramilitary forces to attempt to get its way uh, in its relations with with other countries. Yeah, you've just reminded me of a book. I think we may have done it in this series, but certainly a, a book I recently read about uh, nuclear power being used without ever being used. Yes, you know, that nuclear power gives gives you gives you strength, and you can you can achieve things with it without ever pressing the button. Yes, so that's very much uh, kind of part of the origins of this line of inquiry uh, is in a book. Uh, that Dr. Barry Blackman did with Stephen Kaplan back in 1978 called Force Without War, which uh, did indeed look at uh, the potential for nuclear deterrence uh, playing a role in kind of coercive diplomacy, but also, um, you know, looking at uh, more kind of demonstrations of of presence like port calls and that sort of thing more more symbolic gestures of political commitment 
And so uh, in this study and in the U.S. study that preceded it, uh, what we did was focus on kind of higher end uh, demonstrations of force. So military exercises that were uh, either timed or otherwise shaped to have a political effect in the context of some kind of a, uh, a crisis, perhaps, or ongoing efforts to lobby another government to, to stop enriching uranium or whatever the case may be. Uh, so often, often having to do with nuclear uh, proliferation or, uh, you know, implicitly leveraging nuclear, uh, the possibility of nuclear escalation. Okay, so let's look at your uh, work on China then. And since '49, there's been a phrase, isn't there, active defense. What does that mean? Yeah, so that is essentially China's uh, military strategy of responding to threats or perceived threats to its interests. So that China uh, sees itself as strategically on the defense, right? It doesn't have uh, a lot of declared ambitions to expand its territory, uh, but its declared territory is larger than the territory it currently controls, let's say. So this is a kind of a difficult position China's in. It has what uh, we in the West regard as sort of revisionist aims. It has territorial ambitions beyond its current uh, internationally recognized boundaries. And yet, for Ch- from China's standpoint, that's nothing new. Uh, this is... Uh, consistent with the territorial claims that the Republic of China asserted uh, for for most of the 20th century. And um, China also references kind of uh, traditional rights uh, and influence in its its surrounding geography. And so uh, I think it really is placing itself on the strategic defensive while attempting to assert kind of these broader territorial claims. Um, So active defense is China's use of its military to respond in a kind of proactive manner to perceived threats to its its national interests, uh, especially territorial claims. Before we talk about those territorial claims in detail, uh, each one, let me just... um ask you to explain how you went about your research because you've built up a database or a data set yes of various military operations just just talk us through that sure no so that's uh, a good place to start uh first i want to talk about the term coercion because i i understand it you know admittedly carries a negative connotation uh but both the united states and china uh regularly use the term to criticize one another while sort of denying that they themselves do it, but that both defense establishments clearly think in the terms uh, that political scientists, at least, uh, would would describe as coercion. So for scholars like me, coercion is just the correct term for describing the concepts of deterrence, which is preventing something from happening or dissuading an, uh, an opponent from taking an action, and compellence, which is persuading the the target actor to take some specified action. And so because deterrence is designed to prevent actions that might lead to war, and compellence is often designed to achieve some kind of political objective without resorting to war, many of these efforts are described as 
part of what is called a, a, the gray zone, below the threshold of conventional armed conflict. So they involve implicit threats of force and sometimes the limited use of force, but they're designed to avoid escalation to kind of a conventional armed conflict. So my work is largely focused on explaining how and why and to what effect these efforts uh, have have been undertaken. Um, and, you know, in, in building on the approach from force without war and from military coercion and U.S. foreign policy, I really was already uh, set with a kind of design for approaching this difficult gray area between peace and war, if you will. Um, so this is drawing on kind of the theoretical uh, grounds that were established by scholars like Thomas Schelling, who talked about coercive bargaining, and also Alexander George, who uh, put forward and developed the concept of coercive diplomacy uh, as well. And uh, what we ended up looking at were cases where the U.S., or in, uh, in this case China, uh, tried to produce some kind of psychological or political effect on other states. So this is really... Uh, this means really focusing on uh, military operations and actions like uh, military exercises, um, also, you know, missile tests and demonstrations of certain capabilities, for example, uh, anti-satellite missiles or, uh, you know, nuclear weapons tests, for instance, or just uh, revealing certain technologies like making claims about the development of new weapon systems. Uh, but it's really when there is some military action that is uh, clearly intended to have a, an outsized political effect over a specific issue or in the context of a specific crisis. Right. And, and what did you find? Well, um, so we did statistical analysis on the cases of China's use of armed forces and, and para, uh, paramilitary and military forces. Um, and found basically that uh, there's there's a mixed picture of success, but that on the whole, China tends to have more success in achieving its deterrent aims. In other words, in preventing other countries from doing things that China wishes to prohibit, uh, than it has in persuading those countries to adopt a policy change. And I think the most prominent uh, sort of policy change that China has pursued through these kinds of actions is gaining recognition of its territorial claims or gaining acceptance of the existence of a territorial dispute. So in, in just broad terms, uh, most of the other claimants in territorial disputes with China deny that there is a territorial dispute. Uh, so they basically reject the premise that China has a claim over territories that are under their current control, effective control. And uh, that places China in the position of attempting to get them to, to admit the existence of a territorial dispute. And it often does that by uh, conducting regular patrols, for example, uh, within those disputed areas um, in order to uh, attempt to break the effective or uncontested control of those areas. Um, and it also conducts military exercises when those countries take actions that are designed to uh, deprive China of access or otherwise uh, infringe on the areas that, that China claims for itself. So now, if, if we look at the places where 
China is claiming territory. There's Taiwan, obviously. Yep. Uh, some a bit of Kashmir off the Indians. Yeah. And then tell us about the islands. Where are all the islands and who who has them now? Yes. So uh, China controls uh, the the majority of the Paracel Islands. Uh, there there are uh, competing claims from Vietnam there, uh, but the Spratleys I think are the most contested kind of island uh, chain or or cluster of of. Uh, low tide elevation features. Um, and those are claimed by a number of countries, including uh, U.S. treaty ally, the Philippines, uh, as well as Vietnam, Malaysia, uh, etc. So it, it, there are, you know, four or five parties involved in many of these disputes. China, it's not just a bilateral problem between China and, and its smaller Southeast Asian neighbors. Uh, those countries are also uh, contesting those territories with one another. Now, I think the the critical issue is that uh, under international law, many of those features do not constitute territory and therefore are not entitled to territorial waters. Um, China has put forward kind of a, a theory of uh, UNCLOS uh, in which it can just draw a straight line from Hainan Island out through the Paracels and out around the Spratleys. And this is the, the famous nine dash line uh, in the South China Sea, within which China says it has uh, jurisdictional rights, essentially. Uh, and that's because it defines those features that it claims as territorial features, which uh, they, they basically don't meet the objective criteria under international law for uh, territorial features. Um, so that's that's kind of the the underlying uh, legal issue in in play here. And you mentioned Vietnam, Philippines, uh, Japan, also, right? Uh, so with the Senkaku Diaoyu uh, Islands, yes. So there are these kind of uninhabited islands that are east of east of Taiwan, a ways, and they are among the southernmost territories of the Japanese islands. And uh, China and Taiwan uh, both assert that they are Chinese territory. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, evidence to suggest that the possibility of oil and gas uh, reserves near there has really motivated renewed uh, interest among, among China and, and Taiwan uh, about those features. Nonetheless, that's a good example of a place where you know, China is attempting to uh, compel Japan to admit the existence of a territorial dispute. Japan says there is no such dispute and uh, that the territory is firmly in Japanese uh, control or administration. Um, in 2012, uh, there was what is often referred to as the nationalization crisis when uh, Japan basically took the step of nationalizing or bringing those uh, islands under direct Japanese administration. They had previously been privately owned. And uh, China basically responded to that as though its uh, sovereignty had been violated and said that Japan had taken illegal steps to encroach on China's sovereignty. And so uh, it began much more aggressively 
kind of patrolling out in that direction in order to make clear that Japan didn't have exclusive control over the islands, that China was also exercising some regular presence there. Um, and this is a, uh, what's sometimes referred to as lawfare, right? By establishing its presence, China thinks that it is establishing a more substantial legal claim um, to, to the features. So I, I, I'll ask you a bit more about the islands in a minute, and also, of course, Taiwan at, towards the end. First of all, China, India. I mean, the first point to make is that, that there was a war, wasn't there? I mean, not just a sort of uh, show of force or all these other tactics you're talking about, but um, in 62, there was a war. Yeah, yes, that's that's quite right. So uh, one of the things that I do in the book is I do look back beyond, so the, the majority of the book is focused on the 21st century, okay, starting in the year 2000. But in a few cases, because they're so important for kind of understanding the way in which China uses uh, demonstrative force, uh, I did look back at the uh, run-up to China's intervention in the Korean War, as well as the lead-up to uh, its war with India in 1962 and its invasion of Vietnam in 1978. So uh, in each of those instances... Um, you know, we see basically China attempting to use coercive diplomacy in advance of an invasion. So it's it's putting forward a strong kind of uh, political claim. Uh, in the case of India, it was objecting to Indian patrols across what it what it regarded as the line of actual control, and I think it's probably important to preface any discussion of the the uh, Sino-Indian border dispute by uh, saying that this is another example of an instance where uh, basically the other claimant, in this case India, uh, does not acknowledge the existence of a border dispute. Uh, or they, they basically, their position is that the border is settled. Uh, they're, they're happy with the McMahon line, which it inherited from uh, colonial India. Um, and China objects and says that that is a legacy of colonialism and something that they have not agreed to. And so they're attempting to bring about a negotiation to settle the border, in essence. Um, and then in the meantime, attempting to create the most favorable conditions on the ground to uh, apply coercive leverage on India uh, to at least uh, hold on to as much of what China claims as its own territory uh, as possible and to improve its ability to access those territories um, just physically, logistically, um, and at the same time opposing any Indian patrols that uh, it, it thinks infringe on its claims. Yes, well, I mean, I did see, uh, it must be three or four years ago now, some of the most astonishing YouTube footage I've ever seen where Indian and Chinese troops fought hand combat. Yes. You, you, you must have seen that. Yes. It's absolutely astonishing. And, and the Chinese officers being extremely aggressive, shouting in the face of the Indian officer who was sort of, you know, quite sort of like, let's just cool down. We don't need to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a good, good example of um, what in the, in the data set 
we call unarmed violence, uh, meaning you know, no, that that they're not using firearms in that instance, um, because there are quite a few examples of China or Chinese forces engaged in these kind of low-level uh, scuffles, if you will. Um, and in in the maritime space, it may be throwing rocks and bottles at other ships, uh, or using water cannons. And in the case of the disputed. Uh, Sino-Indian border, as you say, there were there were a number of kind of uh, fights with bats and and rocks and people shoving uh, one another off of the mountain. Um, and some people died. Right? Yes, some indeed. people did die. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's not to say that there's no violence short of armed conflict. It's to say that uh, in in these instances, China is attempting to. Uh, avoid escalating to conventional warfare while at the same time being very forceful and and uh, assertive in its in in its position now I, I, you'll put me straight if I'm wrong about this but I, I think I'm right to say that the Chinese military record really isn't great you know when they have gone to war uh, and that maybe there's a lack of confidence about uh, deploying their armed forces in that way. Maybe lots of other considerations. But is there, is there a sort of lack of confidence in the capacity of their armed forces? Um, you know, I think that that is, uh, that is a fair assessment. Um, I think all, all countries that have attempted to uh, achieve large changes through war have found uh, that it is it, it always seems simpler than it really is uh, to to invade or occupy another country uh, is an extremely difficult and uh, costly and largely self defeating enterprise right because by invading another country you generate opposition uh, that didn't exist beforehand setting aside, uh, you know, in, in addition to or over and above the kind of uh, organized military opposition that you run into. Um, so I think China uh, has often used its armed forces not to uh, invade and occupy as much as to launch some kind of a punitive operation. It, 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 uh, in 62 and in the uh, 78-79 uh, war with Vietnam, uh, launched these kind of limited punitive campaigns uh, designed to do a lot of damage, but mostly to send a signal that China was taking the issue very seriously, that it meant what it said when it issued these threats, and that uh, you know it could only be pushed so far before there were real actions taken. Um, so you know, in a sense, and I think this is a this is a high level takeaway from the study, um, China consciously tries to craft a, a reputation for having resolve around these, these political issues. And one of the ways that you demonstrate resolve is by taking uh, limited military actions to prove how, how seriously you take these issues. But to your point, I mean, the, the, China's experience in uh, Vietnam, for example, was was fairly disastrous for them. They, they expected a kind of swift, easy victory and met stiff opposition. Now, it was not a pleasant uh, experience for Vietnam either, but I think, uh, you know, you're right that 
China may have developed, you know, similar to the United States after after the Vietnam experience, developed a kind of uh, uh, self-doubt about the utility of, of major military operations and their ability to deliver political results uh, swiftly. Okay, I'm going to ask you about uh, the islands now. I think the question to ask you is, you know, we see this, as you say, low-level aggressive activity uh, across quite a large area. Do you think that will ever turn into open conflict, or do you think it just goes on like this? It's a, you know, that's the, that's a key question, um, and you know, uh, calls for speculation. Let's say, uh, but I will also. Uh, it's my impression that China is attempting to um, uphold long-standing territorial claims uh, almost out of path dependency, uh, which is to say they've they've already made public declarations of these territorial claims. and so to to walk away from them would be politically costly and and you know, just in terms of domestic politics, if not, um, you know, to say nothing of its international reputation. So I am skeptical that China intends to launch an amphibious assault on any uh, Philippine islands. Um, I think that, well, so let's take this second Thomas Scholl uh, uh, cri- uh, rolling crisis that's that's ongoing, Okay. This is actually something that dates back um, more than a decade at this point. And the critical thing to understand is that China's not opposed to the Philippines um, uh, resupplying its garrison on that shoal uh, with you know basic provisions, but it does oppose the Philippines uh, constructing any kind of permanent structures there because it regards that as a as a kind of uh, quote unquote unilateral action uh, on the part of the Philippines and it it thinks that it has you know because it has a territorial claim and therefore is asserting that there is a tariff territorial dispute over that area um, it is basically, objecting to the Philippines taking unilateral action to alter the status quo, um, which it says that the Philippines agreed not to do in this declaration on the conduct of, of parties in the South China Sea. Uh, now, there are ongoing negotiations over a binding code of conduct for the South China Sea that could help kind of sort out some of these issues. But, uh, you know, the China's claim over the second Thomas Shoal, it has not been upheld by by international law. You know, the Permanent Court of Arbitration found that th- these are Philippine territories, and that the Philippines has an exclusive economic zone around there, and has a right to kind of exercise all of the jurisdictional uh, rights associated with that. So, uh, you know, China is clearly in the wrong in terms of international law. But because it has made these public declarations that this is indisputable sovereign Chinese territory, uh, it would cost it politically to just turn and walk away from that. So instead, it's focusing on this very narrow issue of the Philippines building permanent uh, structures or, or defenses 
on that shoal. Uh, I don't think that it's likely China will seek to displace uh, or or somehow occupy those features militarily. Well, that's very interesting to hear that. And I, I wonder what, what, whether you feel that the Taiwan dispute is of a totally different order. And it's not just a sort of, we've got to keep going with this because we've said it. Uh, it's, it's, it's seen as a core national interest. Well, it's a, yeah. So I, I do think Taiwan deserves to be in a category all to itself um, in, in these territorial disputes because it's not really a territorial dispute in the same sense. Um, but it is a, uh, let's say from the Chinese standpoint, I think it's an unresolved piece of the Chinese civil war and, you know, failing to understand it through that lens is a source of a lot of the kind of confusion or, or, uh, misalignment, uh, over the Taiwan issue, um, there isn't another. It's not that Japan is making a territorial claim on Taiwan and China is making a territorial claim on Taiwan, and and you know they're competing for who has a stronger case. This is really uh, you know the Republic of China uh, fled the mainland and took up residence on Taiwan, and the United States intervened militarily to prevent the civil war from continuing across the Taiwan Strait. And so that has really remained a kind of frozen conflict in fr- from the Cold War and from the Chinese Civil War specifically um, that remains unresolved. And that that is the main motivation, I think, for for uh, the People's Republic of China to claim Taiwan is that they regard it as rightful Chinese territory that was not transferred to their control when the PRC gained its international recognition as the only legal government of China. Um, so it's a, it's a deep issue, but it does, I think, still trace back to this idea of kind of China's declared position and not wanting to reverse that declared position. It's, it's in for more than a penny. And so I think that its level of commitment over that issue is likely higher than any of the other issues we could we could point to from, from this study. Well, I mean, so it seems because, that, you know, there is very aggressive propaganda on it and it seems mobilization of the population to swing behind the campaign to get it back. I mean, are you saying that you think, you know, it, 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 although it's a a different order issue to the others that there still wouldn't be military action on this because I think many in the states are thinking with current American weakness this might be the time that China strikes. Yeah, this is this is really the great uh, debate uh, currently is you know what kind of a timeline and what kind of uh, red lines would be involved. Um, you know what would motivate China to take more immediate action uh, rather than. Kind of continuing to uh, exercise strategic restraint, let's say, or or patience. Um, so China has declared that it will not defer this issue indefinitely, uh, and that you know if China is persuaded that peaceful unification is not possible or is not making any progress, if there's no progress toward peaceful unification, 
then that is something that would cause it to consider using military force. So I think we're we're very much uh, there already in that the the political trend line does not seem to move in the direction of peaceful unification. But at the same time, uh, I, I think China has an interest in governing Taiwan. They have to imagine the you know uh, the goal of unification involves governing the people of Taiwan. And so I think uh, there's there's a lot of evidence just in terms of China's behavior over the last several decades that it wants a degree of deference and it wants negotiations over unification to happen, but it is not over eager to attack Taiwan. You know, the, the, there are uh, daunting military challenges associated with just an amphibious uh, assault across uh, more than 100 miles of, of strait. Uh, but in addition to that, there are political constraints, both in Taiwan uh, and internationally, that China doesn't want to be viewed as an aggressor internationally. It's put uh, forward this narrative of China as a responsible great power, uh, and it doesn't want to do anything that would fundamentally undermine that narrative. Um, at the same time, you know, we have seen it engage in kind of intimidation tactics towards Taiwan, especially timed around Taiwan's elections. And in response to uh, actions taken by Taiwan's leaders that it regards as, as uh, pushing forward with this idea of independence. Um, you know, we, we have a case study focusing on the 95-96 Taiwan Strait Crisis, often referred to as the third Taiwan Strait Crisis, and also this incident, which I think is extremely significant, in 1999, when Taiwan's president referred to uh, relations with China as state-to-state relations, indicating that China and Taiwan were two different states or nation-to-nation relations, in which there are two different nations. And that is basically the the core of the issue for China. I think it is willing to tolerate most arrangements uh, so long as Taiwan is a part of China in a formal or informal sense. Um, But if Taiwan is explicitly separate from independent from China as a kind of a uh, national entity, uh, then that is something that China is very sensitive about and and would consider using military force in response to that. Uh, So that is the situation. Yeah, I think that that is uh, one of the most dangerous situations on earth. Right, exactly. So, and, and then, I mean, if it happened, of course, there'd be the U.S. response. And it, it takes takes me on to my last question to you, which is, yeah, I think there's a sense. I don't know whether you think American policymakers have this sense, but uh, I think people looking on the situation from around the world would think that if China and the U.S. ended up in conflict, and the Chinese decided to use cyber attacks and to disrupt. Uh, the American internet and all the communications in the country, they'd probably be better at it than the Americans would be doing it to the Chinese. Is that 
Is that a, is that perception there, and is it affecting American decision making? This is a, another tough question, but that's I guess, I guess that's uh, your job. So, <laughs> I think the um, the key thing to understand about cyber uh, when it comes to China is that China does regard cyber uh, warfare as having the potential for kind of strategic level deterrence, which is to say that it believes that by creating a sufficient level of doubt or concern uh, among U.S. policymakers that China would be able to do damage to the U.S. homeland using cyber capabilities, it can have a similar kind of deterrent effect as something like nuclear threats, for example, uh, would have. So um, whether or not it is having that effect, I, I am not really in a position to say what the administration's thinking about, uh, you know, the level of deterrence that China's cyber capabilities can afford it. Uh, But what I will say is that uh, China is seeking to establish a credible threat of uh, disrupting or damaging uh, U.S. national interests. And this is, you know, one a, a, perhaps too fine a point to make, uh, uh, but but I'll try anyways. Um, there's a there's a meaningful difference to some uh, theorists, let's say, between the United States' st- strategic interests, meaning its its interests around the world, and and um, you know partners and allies, and the threats to its forces. Uh, based forward, um, and threats to the U.S. homeland, and that threats to the homeland are perceived to be specially uh, costly for, for uh, America's political leadership. So if uh, China is able to credibly threaten the U.S. homeland in any meaningful way, that's something that may have uh, a more uh, significant impact on kind of the, the, the risk calculations of, of U.S. political leaders. Well, look, thank you very much for t- taking us through this, um, you know, increasingly important issue, I suppose. <laughs> we all have to worry about it, don't we, uh, in the West anyway. So uh, thank you very much for, for explaining it to us. No, it's my, my great pleasure and um, happy, to, happy to talk more about the book anytime.